You know, in, in Israel's history, in the book of Judges, it was when it stopped raining that they often would turn to Baal. He was believed to be the fertility god, and Asherah, his, his sister. And it doesn't rain much in Israel. They need every drop they can get in order to grow crops. And when, when it didn't rain, the people would panic. And instead of turning to God and, and praying to God and asking for his provision, they would turn to the, the pagan practices of the day. So we, we get to the book of Judges, and we saw last week that this third generation came into the land, Joshua representing the first generation and the elders the second generation, and then the third generation takes over the land, and they're the leaders now, and they turn their back on God. And the rest of the book of Judges is a record of what happens when a nation turns its back on God. And it ain't pretty, folks. Judges is one of the hardest books to read through, to preach through. Uh, I warn you ahead of time, I want you to read the Bible with your kids, but pre-read. There's some strange, bizarre, nasty, violent, sexually immoral scenes in this book. It's a nation that's lost its way. And what we tend to do with our kids is we pick and choose uh, a couple characters out of Judges and, and focus on their heroic traits like Samson and his, his great strength. My son had a Samson-like action figure that was like this big when he was little with the hair and everything, the long hair. He looked like a WWF wrestler, really. And I'm like, boy, when he gets older and finds out what Samson's really like, you're going to be a little disappointed. These were not people that we would really want to emulate as Christians. Maybe this particular trait or that, but on the whole, it's, um, it's somewhat of a discouraging book, to say the least. But it's part of God's Word. We need to read it, understand it, and glean truth from it. So we're going we're gonna to take that hero angle this morning and say that God does amazing things through some not-so-amazing people. Which should bring you hope this morning, because I don't know about you, but I'm not-so-amazing people. And yet I want God to do amazing things through me. So... There's encouragement for you today to be a hero for God. There's also a a heavy heavy dose of humility. If you already think you're some kind of great hero, this sermon hopefully will put you in your place. So there's something for all of us this morning. In order to understand, as you read through the book of Judges, I think, again, putting everything in that context of God's big story, his what we're calling a meta-narrative, a narrative, a story that encapsulates all other stories. Judges won't make sense if you just pull it out of context. You have to have that context. God has given us the Bible to reveal himself to us and then how he relates to the world. God is relating to his creation, to humanity, through individuals and, and families. You know, sometimes it's an individual like Adam and Eve or Noah, or sometimes it's Noah's family. 
It could be Abraham. There's an individual, but then his whole family, the, the patriarchal family through tribes. So as families get bigger, we had uh, we hosted a memorial service here Sunday for a, a lady who attends the Nazarene church, but her tribe, so to speak, was so big, they needed to have it here, and it was our honor and privilege to host uh, that here. But uh, she had like... Uh, uh, eight grandchildren, 28 great-grandchildren, and 12 great-great-grandchildren. Uh, Evelyn Walker was her name. Maybe some of you know Evelyn. So we saw the whole clan here, and they had wonderful things to say about their Grammy. And she was their hero, but certainly her hero was Jesus Christ. And so the message was, that's who Grammy would want you to emulate. Her hero. So we could finish the sermon right there and say an amen and go home, but let's dig in a little deeper, as Matt was saying. And um, we need to understand that God has a special covenant relationship with one particular nation. That's God's plan, His choosing. He made covenant with Israel. And we see in the book of Judges, he will often save, quote-unquote, them from her enemies. Um, It's a temporary salvation. Uh, uh, They'll win a victory, they'll have some breathing room for a time. But then they'll turn their back on God again, and their enemies will rise up against them. And God has to come to the rescue again. And God has promised that he will continue to come to Israel's rescue. And it's amazing to be just amazing when I think about modern-day Israel. Six million Jews in Israel surrounded by over two billion Muslims, many of whom would like to see Israel wiped off the face of the earth. And yet, they continue to survive. And they win victory after victory against all odds. And that is because God has made a covenant relationship with Israel. He has promised to be faithful to Israel, even when Israel is not faithful to God. But as Paul writes in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. And what does he mean by that? He's talking about eternal salvation. You see... The Jews believed because they were sons of Abraham and God's people, they would automatically be going to heaven. And Paul says that's not the case. Just because you are an Israelite doesn't mean you are a true Israelite in the internal sense. And praise God that he has reached down and saved Gentiles like you and I. When we sang this morning, Jesus, hope of the nations, the word there in the Greek is actually Gentile, and in many of your Bibles it's translated Gentile. So Jesus is the hope of the nations. John the Baptist told the Jewish leaders of his day, who told you to escape the judgment? Because they said, well, we don't have to worry about being judged. We're sons of Abraham. And so John was saying, no, if... You can't escape the judgment based on your family or your clan or your tribe or your heritage. You must know the Lord and receive His forgiveness. 
So salvation is, in that sense, eternally, is an individual covenant God makes with each of us. The new covenant in Christ's blood. We can take parallels from Israel and look at our own nation or our own life or our own family and take principles and draw them over. But you always have to remember, we are not Israel. America is not Israel. The church is not Israel. Don't read the book of Judges as if it were a prescription for anything. It teaches us principles that we can learn from. God writes His story through individuals, both the saved and the unsaved. Both the saved and the unsaved. And it's hard to tell often in Judges who, who is saved and who isn't. In fact, if Hebrews 11 didn't mention Samson in the Faith Hall of Fame, I'm not sure I would have leaned that way. Even at the end of his life, when he's, was it, his eyes are gouged out and he's chained to the pillars, It's not that he says, God, vindicate your name. He says, God, vindicate my name. And God gives him strength to knock down the pillars. And yet we see in Hebrews 11, there's his name with the other uh, heroes, quote-unquote, of the faith. Maybe the heroes of the Bible aren't as heroic as we make them out to be. And that's kind of the point of the message this morning is Jesus is the true and better hero. The Bible does record snapshots of history, though, to reveal to us who God is and His plan for humanity. So when we read these stories in the Bible, we have to remember that they're just a snapshot. There's, at this point in time, over 6 billion people on the planet, and God is working in everyone's lives. It's amazing, His sovereignty, how powerful He is in His omniscience. It's not that the stories we read in the Bible are the only times that God is active in intervening. In God's providence, He moved the writers of the Bible to record particular stories about particular people to kind of give us a glimpse of what God is doing and what His plan is. But we only have this much of the story. I don't, I don't think I could put my thumb and my index finger close enough together here to say this is, this is as much of the story as we have. But we have enough of the story to know God well enough to be saved and to walk with Him and to tell others about Him and to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. Remember that as we get into the book of Judges, the whole context for the book is a nation that has turned its back on God. Judges 2.10, all that generation, so Joshua and the next generation, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So they didn't see the miracles. They didn't see the great deliverance. They heard stories about it, but they didn't live through it. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And Baal is this pagan fertility god. And the Bible often plural the name Baal because uh, Baal was worshipped in different ways in different areas of Canaan. And so Baal became just synonymous with pagan worship. Uh, Baal had a sister named Ashtaroth, and they would worship her too by erecting these poles. So Baal was often pictured as a bull, and Ashtaroth there was a, a pole. And sometimes the pole was shaped, yeah, fertility symbol. So you're already starting to get a picture for the land that we're talking about. This isn't a place you and I would want to live. Judges 2.16 And the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So as Israel turned its back on God and turned towards idolatry, they would become weak as a nation. And God would allow their enemies to rise up against them in order to punish, to discipline, to bring them back to repentance. And we understand that, even in our individual lives, right? When things are going great, we tend to drift from God. And when things are difficult, it drives us back to our knees, to our war room. I have a feeling that the, the movie must center around somebody's difficulties and they need to, to draw close to God. I'm probably not spoiling any the plot for anyone. This is life. When things are going well, we drift from God. We should thank Him and praise Him and use those good times and that energy that comes with it to go out and, and serve and to witness to the world. Because there will be times when we are weak, persecuted, suffering from illness, in financial difficulty. It shouldn't take the bad times for us to draw near to God, but it often does. And so God would raise up these judges. Don't think judges, black robe, settling disputes. Yes, that was part of their calling. Uh, the judge Deborah was also a prophetess, so she would hear from the Lord and sp speak words of prophecy. Other judges were military heroes. And so really the word judge in the Hebrew can mean hero, just in the generic sense. God would raise up heroes, as he's done all throughout history. And in the modern age, we think of like the Billy Grahams and the Charles Spurgeons raising up heroes to shake us out of our slumber, out of our stupor, to pick up the banner and lead the way. And so the people would listen to the judges and they would rise up and God would give them the power to defeat their enemies and they would turn back to God for a little while and then things would go well and the prosperity would settle in and they would drift from God and then as things started to go not so good, instead of turning back to God, they would turn to the idols of the land. 
And so it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. They totally scrapped history and said, I'll do what's right in my own eyes. Judges demonstrates the fate of a nation that turns its back on God. That is, that is the biggest principle to glean from this book. What happens to a nation that turns its back on God? Israel had every advantage. If we were to say, how could we start over and start a nation that would honor God and be blessed and put it on a path towards Generation after generation after generation of faithfulness. What would we do? Well, you know, we would start with a pure generation, and God did that in the wilderness. Everybody who was in Egypt who saw pagan idolatry, they died in the wilderness. That next generation took the land and they cleared the land out. So we'll 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 start over somewhere. We'll clear the land out of idolatry, and we'll start with God's law. And that should do the trick, right? And you think that would do it. And I know you do because I do sometimes at night saying, how can we get, how can we get things back to good in, in our nation? And you want to scrap it and start over. It's almost seeming like we're too far gone to try to reform. Like, if we could just scrap it and start over. Remember, 10 years ago, there was a group who wanted to take a particular state and secede from the Union and just make it a Christian state. And the problem was, half the people in that state that said they were Christians weren't really. So, um, and the other half that weren't Christians weren't going to leave. So, you can scrap that plan. And I guarantee you, if we started over fresh somewhere we'd end up blowing it too. It's just human nature. Oh, it'd be good for a little while. It'd be good for a little while. This is the historical record of man's relationship with God. I mean, let's think about it. Didn't Adam have the kind of life we were all looking for? Paradise, perfect walk with God, my work is meaningful, beautiful woman, paradise, and yet they wanted more. And they thought that disobeying God would bring more. At its root and at its essence, that's what leads to apostasy. I want more, I deserve better, and if God won't supply it, I will find something else to supply. That's all an idol is. Something that replaces God in your life that you think will bring you more happiness or more power or more fulfillment or more satisfaction. After 350 years of this, so Judges spans 350 years, so don't think this all happened overnight we get this downward spiral that gradually breaks down the spiritual and moral fabric of the nation until Israel gets to the place where they can no longer govern themselves. Right? Each tribe was to go to its... Each 
part of the land, clear the land, live life according to God's word. And there were a couple times a year where they were all supposed to meet back together at Shechem to hear God's word read out loud at the, um, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. But for the most part, it was supposed to be a self-governing nation, and they couldn't pull it off. We're supposed to be a self-governing nation, and we're starting to see the cracks in the foundation. We need more police, more regulation, more prisons, more rules. People can't seem to govern themselves, and you can't. If you don't have that robust relationship with God, if there's no fear of the Lord in you, then you cannot govern yourself. Eventually, things got so bad in Israel that it paved the way for a king. It paved the way for a king. They were ready for a king. And that's when we get into Saul and then King David. But all of that really was just paving the way for the true king, Jesus Christ. And let me give you this word of encouragement this morning. I know things are getting bad in our world and in our nation. And yet... The biblical record is always that things have to get bad and then God shows up and saves the day. Because if things aren't going bad, nobody wants God. Nobody wants the real hero. I promised my, my wife I wouldn't get political this Sunday, but she's not here, right? <laughs> it makes her uncomfortable. All I want to say is that seven years ago, this nation said, we're going to elect a hero and he's going to fix everything. And we, we knew as Christians, how foolish. But what if he was the guy you like politically? Do you really think that that's going to fix everything? No, things are getting worse by God's design so that we will cry out for the real hero to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. We made the mess... Will you clean it up again? Because we're not very good at cleaning up. We're good at making the mess. Not so good with the cleaning up. The cycle of apostasy we see then is, you'll see in, in the book of Judges, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that'll, that'll start a new section in Judges of apostasy. And then Israel's enemies will, will get strong and they'll enslave or conquer parts of Israel, and the people will finally cry out to the Lord. And since the Lord has a covenant relationship with the children of Israel, He will come to their rescue. Right? As any good father would. I know when our, when our kids mess up, and mine aren't, mine aren't at that age yet, but at some point... You have to cut them loose and say, no, you're, you go out in the world. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to go learn the hard way. And yet, when they've learned their lesson, they come home and, and want healing. You let them home. And there's no guarantee that they really learn their lesson. And you may have to boot them out again. But a, a good father and a good mother loves their children. You have that covenant relationship with them and you'll continue to reach out to them until they no longer reach out to you. And the Lord is like that with the nation Israel. He will continue to reach out to them. God will have pity on His children, raise up a judge, and God will miraculously, supernaturally, through that judge, deliver Israel from her enemies. She'll 
praise God, say, okay, this time we're going to follow you. (laughs) And within a short time, they're right back to apostasy. And then the cycle repeats. And each time the cycle goes around, the judge gets less impressive and the repentance gets less sincere until you finally get to Samson and you're like, I don't even know if there was any repentance there. And at the end of the book of Judges, it just says everybody did was right in their own eyes. That is a recipe for disaster and that is exactly the recipe our culture is preaching in our schools and in our movies and in our TVs. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. You know, historically, how has that worked well for anyone? Why do we keep falling for this? And yet, it's like, where did I hear that biblically the first time? In the garden from Satan. Hey, do what's right in your own eyes. You can be God. Who are these judges? There's 13 of them mentioned in, uh, specifically in Judges, though there's, there's more. But there's Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar... Hey, careful when you're reading the story of Ehud with your kids. It's pretty graphic. It's kind of like a godfather scene. And uh, Shamgar, I think, was the guy who killed a bunch of Philistines with an ox goad, which, uh, that's pretty cool, right? Um, He's like Jason Bourne or something, you know? Deborah and Barak. um, Barak was supposed to be the leader but he wouldn't go to war unless Deborah went with him. She was a prophetess. And God ended up shaming the men of Israel through their lack of courage and lack of obedience. Um, that one's a pretty graphic story, too. It ends with Israel's enemy dying in a tent, having a tent peg ran through his head. By the hands of a woman again. So God specifically shamed the male leadership of the nation. Uh, Gideon, who we'll look at in a moment. Gideon had a son, Abimelech, who was a horrible, terrible judge. Ended up killing all 70 plus of his brothers so there'd be no competition to be judge. Tola, Jair, uh, Jephthah. Oof, that story. Jephthah comes back and says, Lord, if you give me the victory today, the first person to come out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. And his daughter comes running out of the house. And I'm pretty sure he sacrifices her. Uh, Commentators disagree over that. But I think all the commentators who disagree with a lot of the things in Judges are trying desperately to make the book of Judges look like something we'd want to emulate and follow. I think that's exactly the opposite point God is making. Don't be like Israel during this part of their history. Don't turn your back on God. Crazy things happen. Terrible things happen. Horrible things happen. We are living off the fumes, off the vapor trails of Christian influence in our country. And so everything seems rather normal to us and good. But you hear stories of people coming back from other parts of the world where there's been very little Christian influence and the horror stories. My goodness. And you say, well, this is how people live when they don't know the true God. They fill in the blanks with their own sin. 
and their own understanding. I recently was reading a story from our Marines coming back from Afghanistan training the military police to take over, and apparently a lot of the people supposed to be on our team um, have relations with young boys, and it, it is normal in their culture. And it's, these Marines are having PTSD when they come back because the screams and their commanding officers said, you can't do anything about it. It is their culture. It is what they do. And you're like, really? How could you not know that's wrong? How could you not know that's wrong? Even if you're Islamic, I thought there was a sexual purity code in Islam. And... Um, that's just one of many stories. You'll, our missionaries will come back from the field and tell us stories of, wow, really? That's what they think? That's what they do there? This is what happens when you, when you don't know the Lord. And as our country turns its back on the Lord, we are going to start seeing stranger and more discouraging, more disgusting stories hit the news. It won't be a nation like you older generation remember. And it seems to be happening rather rapidly. Rapidly. Remember that these stories recorded in Judges happened during a time of apostasy in Israel's history. They're, they're recorded so we know what happens when a nation turns its back on God. The Judges aren't necessarily people we should emulate. In parts of their life we can emulate. Um, but what we should do is read Judges and try to glean biblical principles from their stories. That's what I'll try to do the rest of the time that we're in Judges this month. Here's some principles we'll talk about. Number one, a nation that turns from God is doomed to failure. That'll, that'll be the major theme. Number two, God often allows pagan nations to prosper for a time in order to discipline His people. It kind of feels like the other team's winning right now in our own country. But they're not. They're not. God wins. God wins. Don't ever doubt that. God wins. Idolatry leads to the breakdown of society, which gets progressively worse over time. Read Romans 1, and Paul gives you the pattern. And we see that pattern working in our, our own culture today. Remember, though, that idolatry starts with individuals. So don't, don't make the mistake of looking at our culture and saying, oh, terrible what everyone's doing. Terrible how everyone's turning their back on God. Be careful. Idolatry lurks in our own hearts, even those redeemed with a new heart. So preach the sermon to yourself first. God is merciful and responds to cries of repentance. No matter how bad things get, it, you can always turn back to the Lord. No one in this room can say, I'm too far gone, I've, I'm too horrible, God couldn't save me. Yes, He can. In fact, He does His best work there. That's what brings Him the greatest glory. Oh, our culture's too far gone. Your job isn't to turn the entire culture around. Your job is to bring the gospel to one individual at a time. Let God handle the whole culture and the nation. 
Finally, God does some of His best work through ordinary people so that we will worship God and not man. These judges, regular folk, that for a moment in time, God endued with special power to complete a special task. That's good news because I'm ordinary people. I don't know about you, but I'm ordinary people on my best days and on my worst days, I feel like I can't accomplish anything. In fact, it's the days when I feel like a hero are the days I'm trying to accomplish things that are easy for me to do in my own strength. You know, things that are easy for me to do in my own strength. And I'll compare myself to other people who don't have that that gift or talent and go, wow, look at me, I'm pretty heroic compared to this person over here. And then Jairus gets on the piano and I feel like a complete loser, you know, because I can't play an instrument, I can't sing. And then I look around me and see all these wonderful gifts and talents God's given the church that I don't have and realize that is on purpose to keep us humble and dependent on God. And then God is the hero. Jesus comes and he's got all the gifts And some people were drawn to him, but most of the world was like, ooh, I hate that you're here. You remind me of just how pathetic I really am. You must go. And the world tried to destroy him. Gideon. Gideon, uh, not a very impressive man, by his own admission. Okay? Who is this Gideon? He's from the tribe of Manasseh. which isn't one of the larger tribes. He's out one day threshing wheat, but he's in the wine press. Why is he in the wine press threshing wheat? You should be outside threshing wheat. Because he's afraid the Midianites would come down and steal his wheat. We read that this is exactly what they would do. They would wait for Israel to sow, and then during the harvest, they'd come down and steal all their food. And they were powerless to do anything about it. And so Gideon's threshing wheat. He's hiding in the wine press trying to thresh wheat. This is a totally inefficient way to go about threshing. I've never threshed wheat. I've read about it. You need to be outside. You need to get the wheat up into the air so the wind can blow away the chaff. You need lots of space. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to press grapes in the wine press, not, not thresh wheat. And the angel of the Lord comes and appears to him. It says, the angel of the Lord, that's the pre-incarnate Christ, came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah. Interesting name there. Which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Okay, there's nothing about Gideon at this point that would deserve the title valiant warrior. It's a prophetic title. It's a prophetic title. You will be a, prof- a valiant Warrior. It may also be a bit of um, a jab. Here you are hiding in the wine press, O valiant warrior. 
Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is, is truly with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So I've heard the stories about this great Yahweh God, how he delivered my forefathers from Egypt, how he brought us into the land, and how we won the battle at Jericho. But I haven't seen this Lord. I want to believe in this Lord, but I don't see it. Has your faith ever been there? Come on, be honest. Yeah, some head nods. I've heard the stories. I've read the stories. Where's the miracles? Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. The world's falling apart. Maybe I have some adult children who've walked away from the Lord and just feels like none of my prayers are being answered. And Maybe you prayed earnestly for somebody struggling with illness and, and they didn't get better. And you're wondering, where's this God that I've read about in the Bible? This is, this is what Gideon is saying. So let's not look down on him. Let's see ourselves in, in Gideon. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength, of which he has very little, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? This reminds me of him telling Moses, lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses saying, who am I? Who am I? I can't even speak correctly. I have a speech impediment. Watch what Gideon says. He said to him, O oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Good question. The answer is, you won't. God will. Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. As if, if he was from the greatest tribe and the greatest family, and he was the oldest, he'd be able to defeat Midian. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. That's all you need to know. The one with all the power will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as if one man. As if you were one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Have you ever done this? Oh, I see some nods. Ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. When, uh, when Jennifer and I sold our house back in Elk Grove, which we didn't want to, we thought we'd live in that house forever. My parents live in their house still. My childhood home, her parents live in her childhood home. When we bought our first house, we figured this is the one we'll live in forever. And I had a feeling, I, I sensed God was telling us to sell our house. And I, I said, could you show me a sign? And I'm not, I'm not kidding at all. 2 a.m., I can't sleep. I have insomnia. I don't know what to do with this house because we're, we're getting upside down in our mortgage. What do I do with this house? And I loved this house. It was a track home. I would walk around with a little can of touch-up paint every day and try to keep it looking brand new. Yeah, good luck with kids, right? And all of a sudden, after I prayed that, it sounded like somebody shot the, 
a window with a BB gun. And that little window, there was a little window above the sliding door. Just a little, you know, it didn't do anything, just let in a little bit of light. It, it, it cracked. It just busted. And then the moisture got in between the panes. And every time I looked at that window, and, you know, I called and I'm like, how much is it going to fix this window? And they said, actually, it's way more expensive to fix that little strip of window than replace a regular window. And I'm like, great, I don't even, I can't even make my mortgage payment. How am I going to fix this window? And I cannot stand things being out of their place. I am very meticulous. Now, I don't recommend you ask God for a sign. I'm just saying my faith was really small back then, and he gave me, he gave me a sign. But the timing's too impeccable for it to not have been God. It wasn't a BB gun. It just, I think the house settled and it just, it just cracked. And so he asked God for the sign and God says to put out the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord touches it and it gets consumed with fire and Gideon says, oh wow, never seen that before. This is, this is the angel of the Lord. And so God now that Gideon's feeling a little more courageous in his faith and he's getting to know this God who can do miracles, God tells him, I want you to go to your father's house and I want you to rip down his altar to Baal. Now, keep in mind, his father's the patriarch of this whole area. This is where everyone came to worship. I want you to rip down the altar to Baal. I want you to take two of your dad's bulls, because remember, uh, Baal was pictured as a bull. So I want you to take some real bulls to kind of mock this false god. And I want you to rip down your dad's Asherah pole. And I want you to use the wood from the Asherah pole to make a real altar to me. And I want you to sacrifice these bulls. That's pretty gutsy stuff. I can't even think... I was trying to think of a parallel. I mean, it would be like if your family... If your dad was Hindu or Buddhist and had, had you know, uh, idols on the mantle and you went home in the middle of the night and took these family idols that had been in your family for generations and carved a cross out of it and hung it back on the mantle and said, we're worshiping the true God in this house from now on. That doesn't even come close. That's, that's as close as I could get. In fact, he was so afraid to do this that it says he took ten men of his servants and because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. So he snuck in there at night and pulled this off. Now, I don't know how people didn't hear all the chopping of wood. And, but they got up the next morning and they, who did this? Who did this to our God? Who did this to our gods? And they find out Gideon did it. And they go to his dad and they say, bring your son out, we're going to stone him to death. And his dad says, Baal can fend for himself. You know, if Baal was this great God, then surely he could have defended himself against my youngest son and ten of his buddies. And so he's kind of impressed with his son, and he says, From this day forward, my son's name is Jerubal, 
which means contended against Baal. So he's kind of feeling a little more courageous, and that's how life works with you. you. You taste a little victory. And so then God says, all right, now we're going to go from that to we're going to defeat all the Midianites. That's, that's a big leap of faith there. And Gideon shrinks in his courage again, and he tests God, not once but twice. He says, God, if you really are going to deliver Midian into our hands, give me another sign. I'm going to put out a fleece on the wine press floor. And in the morning, if there's dew on the fleece but not on the ground, I'll know that you mean business. And God, God condescends. And again, Judges is not prescriptive. Do not try this at home, folks. Don't put God to the test like that. But he puts out the fleece, he comes back, there's dew on the fleece, there's no dew on the ground. So instead of saying, all right, God means business, he goes, well, right, you know, dew could stick to fleece and not the ground. So let's do it again tonight. I'll put out the fleece, but this time God put dew on the ground, but not on the fleece. Let's not hold Gideon up on a pedestal here. The man was weak in his faith, but God condescended, stooped to his level, said, if this is what he needs, and he shows him a sign, and now Gideon has the courage to go out and defeat Midian. And so he calls all of Israel together, all the men of Israel, all the mighty men of valor, to come and fight against Israel. And God says, way too many men The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. And so he starts weeding out soldiers until they get down to 300 Israelite soldiers. And God gives them the victory. Really, all Gideon had to do was sneak in in the middle of the night to the Midianite camp, hide some torches under some jars, grab a trumpet, and on his signal, they all broke their jars so that there would be light all around the Midianite camp, and they would blow their trumpets and start yelling as if they were an army of tens of thousands. And in the confusion, God moved the men of Midian to attack one another, and so they end up defeating themselves. So only God can get the credit for this victory. Only God can get the credit for this victory, and it's exactly the way God wants it. So then, what do we glean from the whole thing? I know Gideon's supposed to be one of our heroes. So I'll give you the good, the bad, and the ugly from Gideon. The good. After all their victories, the men of Israel said to Gideon, "'Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son.'" For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. He got it right. Let's give Gideon credit for that. You lead somebody to the Lord, I'll tell you for a little while these people will hang on your every word and you will be tempted to be their hero until they start calling you at all hours of the night. 
You need to give all glory to God and point them to Jesus as their hero. I'm just the messenger. Paul told Timothy, live as I do as much as I copy the Lord. But eventually, at the end of his life, Timothy, you don't need to follow me anymore. Follow Jesus. We have an amazing message we can preach, and it's going to blow people away when God opens their spiritual eyes. Don't take credit for the story. God is the hero. Here's the bad. Gideon said, after all of our victories, I deserve a little of the spoils. And so they bring gold to Gideon, and he melts it down into an ephod, which is like a breastplate that a priest would wear or a general would wear. And he hangs it in Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. So it became a snare to Gideon and his household. His pride got to him. This amazing golden ephod. Here's the ugly. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. The, he started to live like a king. Even though he said, the Lord will be your king, he started to live like a king. He took many wives. He had... Seventy sons, he had concubines, so in addition to his wives, he had concubines. One of his concubines had a son named Abimelech. It came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. Gideon, in the last days of his life, didn't lead his people to the worship of the true God. Something got missed in translation again. And so, as wonderful as the story is, and we read the story to our kids and talk about Gideon's army, and we love the Gideons who, very few of them in numbers, but they put Bibles everywhere. And that's, that's the whole point of the Gideons and Gideon's army, that a few people can impact the world in a great way. Because it's God who's powerful. It's God's Word who's powerful. The, the big takeaway from the story is Gideon isn't really the kind of hero that we like in our culture. We want the Indiana Joneses and the Captain America. and They're smart. They're smarter than everyone else. They're debonair. They always get the woman. They're great in hand-to-hand combat. The women, you have your heroes too. My wife always jokes her hero growing up was Claire Huxtable. I see some nods. She's beautiful, fit, lawyer, raising five kids, no maid, no cook. She's she no Mrs. Brady. She doesn't need a cook. She brings home the bacon, fries it up in the pan, and then runs five miles after, apparently. You know, this impossible picture of heroism. We're, we're the kind of heroes God's looking for are more like this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and we'll end here. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen 
the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about us. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. God brought the gospel to you and gave you the faith to believe it. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us all the things we want in a hero. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beloved, stop trying to impress the world on the world's terms. We think that if the world will be impressed with us, then they'll listen to our gospel. I have news for you. If the world is impressed with you, you won't bother telling them the gospel. Nobody can withstand that kind of praise. And you'll be so busy trying to impress the world, you'll never get around to the gospel. Because you know, as soon as you start talking about Jesus, they're going to mock you, and there goes the friendship. There goes the praise. And so Paul says, I determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So you put your faith in the right person, the right hero, Jesus Christ. So join me in prayer and we'll thank God that we're not very heroic. And that's a good thing. Father God, we want to be heroes of the faith, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to Christ. Be strong in our weakness. May your words be the words of wisdom, not our own clever ideas and philosophies. May you be impressive your accomplishments on the cross be impressive, not our temporary accomplishments that will, will be burned up on the last day. May we put our effort into that which will withstand the fire, not things made of wood, hay, and stubble, but the precious things, the gospel, winning friends for Christ, loving others, preaching and teaching your word, reaching the lost around the world. And every second we spend in our knees in prayer, these are the things that matter and will last. In Christ's name we pray, amen.